Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 33, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 22 this evening. The word of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. But all the earth fear the Lord, but all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, we'll be reading through verse 9 this evening. The word of our God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Psalm 33, as that will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Barnabas was true to his name. And in his case, that was a wonderful thing to be. Because Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And one of the things we can never have enough of, either in the world or in the church, are people who give genuine, heartfelt, meaningful praise as a way of encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. To encourage another human being is to instill confidence and hope into their lives. We do this primarily by offering genuine and heartfelt praise. First, there's the obvious fact that our genuine and heartfelt praise of those around us strengthens them to face the future with renewed confidence and genuine hope. Second, we can encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ by praising the Lord in their presence. The first type of praise encourages people by telling them that they are valued, that they are capable of making a difference, and that they belong. The second type of praise encourages Christians by reminding them that their only hope in life and in death is a certain and unshakable hope. But the Lord is able and willing to use them to protect them and to bring them all the way home to glory. Received together, these two types of praise can strengthen and carry someone through life. Indeed, they are capable in God's power through his Holy Spirit of transforming the lives of our brothers and sisters. Yet for this praise to be effective, it must be genuine and heartfelt. That's true for our brothers and sisters, but it turns out that's also true with our praise to God. If we're going to worship God, we need to worship him truly, with genuine praise that is also heartfelt. As Jesus tells us, God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship the Lord in a manner that is pleasing to him that our worship needs to be based squarely upon his attributes and his activities. That is, our worship must be based on who the Lord is and what the Lord does. First and foremost, such worship pleases God. That, after all, is the most important thing in worship. But secondly, it also fulfills that second activity of worship. When we gather for corporate worship and we praise God in front of other people, when we praise him for who he is and what he has done and what he is doing, that very praise brings encouragement into the life of everyone who is trusting in him. This evening's psalm focuses on praising the Lord for four well-grounded realities. First, praise the Lord for his creative power. Second, praise the Lord for his sovereign grace. Third, Praise the Lord for righteously governing the universe. And fourth, praise the Lord 
for his steadfast love. The psalm begins with a call to worship, and it concludes with a confident prayer for the Lord's steadfast love to be upon us. Naturally enough, we begin with the call to worship. Verses 1 through 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Praising the Lord is fitting for those who have been justified by his free grace. It is fitting because the Lord is worthy. And it is fitting because we were created and redeemed to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, It's worth noting something about the Hebrew of these opening verses. I think it's something you probably just grasped intuitively. But the Hebrew is actually in the plural. But it's this call to worship is a call to corporate worship. It's a call for God's people as we gather together to worship him in this way with great enthusiasm. Um, That makes great sense, of course. It is fitting for the new family of God to gather together to sing his praise, but that also fits the second function of praising God. As we gather together for corporate worship, the very fact that we're praising God together, that stirs up each other in our confident hope that the Lord will use us, that he will bless the labors of our hands, And that he will bring us all the way home. Because as we praise God for who he is and what he has done, we are saying he is able, he is willing, and he is committed to doing that very thing. Now this is the first psalm in the Psalter that actually mentions musical instruments. And for that reason, it's gotten a great deal of attention. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this, probably most of you. uh, But one of the perhaps surprising developments in the Reformed world is at the time of the Reformation, the Reformed Christians and uh, a number of the Puritans after them came to the conclusion that musical instruments should not be used in corporate worship. Fine to use in your homes, but they should not be used in corporate worship. Um, That's really kind of a peculiar development of the Reformed world. I'm not really aware of any other Um, communion of Christians who have come to that conclusion. And in my judgment, the first reformers, when they did this, they came to this conclusion as a reaction against Roman Catholic worship. Roman Catholic worship had often degenerated into really a spectacle. Skilled singers, skilled choirs, skilled speakers, skilled musicians would perform while the people of God basically sat there as spectators. One of the interesting twists of history is that's now something that commonly happens in evangelical churches. Uh, But in reacting against that, and we want to say that was bad, the Reformers were wise to say that's not what God wants for corporate worship. They began by saying we need to do something simple that everyone can do. We're going to chant the Psalms. And then they also learned to sometimes sing the Psalms. But a little bit later on they started saying, and that's all we're going to do, And as a matter of principle, musical instruments should not be used in corporate worship. And in some strands of the Reformed world, uh, that still continues to this day. My honest assessment 
is that the arguments that are used to defend that practice are really, really thin. That is, they're found wanting. Uh, First, while a reaction against Roman Catholic worship is understandable, we should avoid being reactionary, both in our faith and in our practice. Our goal as Christians is to follow Jesus Christ. Our goal is to be faithful. Our goal is not to be unlike someone else or to put distance between our group and their group. The regular principle means that we seek to worship God according to his revealed will, what he says in his word. The regular principle does not mean if the Roman Catholics do it, it is wrong. Second, it just strikes me as the oddest thing to be devoted to singing the Psalms. You'll note that almost every church that um, practices uh, corporate worship without musical instrument either is exclusive psalm singers or nearly exclusive psalm singers. It just strikes me as the oddest thing to be devoted to singing the psalms and then to be singing the psalms which talk about worshiping God with musical instruments and saying, but don't do that. I just don't think that works very well. And third, when we turn to Revelation chapter 5 and the Lord gives us a glimpse into worship from heaven's perspective, This is what we read. And when he, that is Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Beloved, that is not a picture of old covenant worship, something you could say was left behind with the coming of Christ. This is worshiping the Lamb, who had been slain. Jesus has already died. He's already done the work of redeeming us. And it's God's eye view of worship where the elders have musical instruments, that is, they have harps. So to me, that's really pretty straightforward. Nevertheless, this continues to be a live division within the Reformed world. For example, our dear brothers and sisters in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, as what they consider is a matter of principle, do not use musical instruments in their corporate worship. Where there shouldn't be any division is that all of us are being called to enthusiastically worship the Lord. Now, those of us of very limited musical ability are pretty excited that it begins by telling us that we are to shout, yes, shout for joy to the Lord. We can all do that. But then we move down to verse 3 and we notice something really interesting. Please please pay attention to this. In verse 3, we are called to play skillfully to him. Here's the reality. Not everything in life is worth devoting yourself to being excellent at it. Um, I think sometimes when people are young, we say, you know, if it's it's worth doing, it's worth doing really well. Uh, That's not true. There are plenty of things in life that are just fine for you to go out and do and to enjoy and not devote yourself for. 
But this is different. One of the things that is worth our best efforts is worshiping God skillfully with our voices and skillfully with musical instruments because Jesus Christ is worthy and this activity pleases him. We're also told in verse 3 that we're to sing a new song unto the Lord. If you look at that expression throughout the Bible, it's used, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15 times. What you're going to see is it almost always is in a context where God has done something dramatic, something big, an act of deliverance. And the idea is, is we're putting our confidence in this God who does these great things for us. And we ought to have this fresh burst of worship, either with new words or perhaps with new hearts. Uh, I think it makes sense that such great events would inspire new music. And we can be grateful that there are a number of men and women who are once again creating truly excellent hymns. Uh, For old folk like me, if you go back three and four decades ago, to say contemporary Christian music was almost the same thing, almost by definition saying, bad, cheesy, unworthy of God. Uh, I think of... um, Pastor Chuck Smith, he was the father-in-law of my pastor. Uh, But back then, uh, it was very common for praise leaders. uh, They'd write new music, and they would get up in front of us, and they'd go, I'd like to share with you a song that the Lord has given me. And Chuck always used to reply, you sing the song, we'll decide whether or not the Lord gave it to you. And when he was feeling a little bit more edgy, Pastor Chuck might say, I thought the Lord had better taste in music. Uh, I do want to say it's bad for people. I know that people are just trying to turn the attention away from themselves, at least we hope that. We ought really not to say the Lord gave us a song. It makes it sound almost like it's inspired like one of the Psalms. Um, Nevertheless, I think we ought to be truly grateful that we live at a time when fresh music is being written that's really good. Um, It's theologically rich, It's moving in how it's put together. We ought to appreciate that, and we ought to use it. We worship God, at least in private, and at times in our corporate worship. Nevertheless, I don't think that's really the focus of the song. I don't think the emphasis is on the newness of the lyrics. I think it's on the freshness of our hearts. This idea of singing a new song is saying, God doesn't want you just to come into worship, come into his presence and go, I'm checking the box. I did my religious duty today. You know, I, I, go, to, I go to church, I mumble through some stuff. God wants us to come into worship with a renewed sense of awe over who he is, with an excitement that we are meeting with the living God, with a sense of joy where we, we pour ourselves out to him, expecting him to act on our behalf. We are to sing a new song with renewed and joy-filled hearts. Uh, Verses 4 and 5 serve as a heading for the rest of the psalm. If you actually want a quick summary of the psalm, you can just mark verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, since these ideas are all going to be unpacked in more detail through the rest of the psalm, I'm not going to say anything about that right here. 
But as I mentioned, if you want to mark off kind of a summary of the main points of the psalm, of the psalmist has actually given it to us in those verses. We now come to the first main section of the psalm in terms of what we're to praise the Lord for. We are to praise the Lord for his creative power. Look at verses 6 through 9 with me. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, but all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Now, people sometimes ask, if God is sovereign, why pray? We can rephrase that a bit, because God is sovereign. Since God is sovereign, why pray? What's the point? I wonder if any of you have asked that question. I want to say that at least part of our answer should be this. If God isn't sovereign, why pray? I mean, what's the point of bringing our concerns, our troubles, our hardships to someone who can't do anything about it? I I think that's actually one of the frustrating things in this life. You have a problem with some organization, you're on the phone, and you're talking to someone on the other end who doesn't have the power to actually solve the problem. And, And you're going, do I try to talk to their boss? Do I just politely hang up? And what do I do? It's frustrating. Here's the good news. You never have that problem when you're praying. You are talking to the one who holds every single molecule of the universe in his hands. All of it. He can accomplish anything he wants for your good and for his glory. How great is the Lord's power? He simply spoke the word and the entire universe leapt into being. Have any of you seen the new um, photographs from the James Webb Telescope? If you haven't, I'd encourage you to take a look at them online. It's it's just fascinating stuff. Um, Seeing galaxies from far, far away and learning new things about the universe. And physicists are having a ball here trying to speculate about where there might be water on some of these planets and so on. It's incredible. But I just want to say the sheer vastness of the universe, it's almost... Uh, impossible to wrap our minds around. And yet their creator says, I hold them all in the palm of my hand. There's something a lot greater than the universe that God has made, and that is the creator himself. And even on a far, far smaller scale, none of us goes to the seashore, looks out at the ocean, and thinks, boy, am I big. Right? No, it's, it's really moving to see something that is so vast. And God appoints all their limits. He created the oceans, but he also established where they will stop. How could we do anything other than stand in awe of him? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Praising the Lord for his creative power, flows naturally into praising him for his providential governing of all things. Yet verses 10 through 12 are not simply about God's wise providence in the abstract. They're about how the Lord works all things together for his own glory 
but also for the good of his people. But as they're not simply about providence, they're about his sovereign grace. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Are there powerful kings and nations who hate God and hate his people? Of course there are. There have been throughout all of history. I mean, just consider that question from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, That's the way the enemies of God naturally think. And by the way, not just the kings. The kings, the paupers, and everyone in between. What they resent is the idea that they have to obey and be held accountable to this God. So here's a reality in terms of your work in the workplace, your involvement in school, and so on. No pagan cares that you happen to believe in a God. None of them do. As long as you're willing to say, well, you know, I know there's different ways, different approaches, and our God's just a cosmic teddy bear who doesn't care how you live and just wants you to be happy all the time. It's only because you believe in the God of the Bible that this becomes a point of opposition. Because unbelievers hate the fact that they will be held accountable to this God. But the universe is governed according to his righteous laws rather than to their own lawlessness. But do you remember how the Lord responds when the nations rage against him? Psalm 2 continues... He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord will hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Beloved, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what Psalm 33 is saying as well. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing... He frustrates the plans of the people. Instead, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Yet please notice this is not simply the Almighty toying with his enemies. That's not what the psalmist is praising here. Look closely at verse 12 with me. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, The people whom he has chosen is his heritage. In in the context of this psalm, the the issue about the Lord bringing to naught the plans of the nations is precisely because he's bringing to naught the plans they have against his people. The Lord is absolutely governing all things. That is certainly true. But the good news is he's governing all things for his own glory and for your good. What things? I remember having a conversation with someone about this that wanted to be an Arminian. You know, you go back and just read Ephesians, right? It just says it. All things. I had to go back like 12 times in a row going, what things? All things. 
Well, beloved, I trust you won't miss that. God is sovereignly working every single thing that comes into your life for his own glory and for the good of his people. See, the psalmist is not merely calling us to celebrate the Lord's sovereignty, although that's a worthy thing to celebrate. He is calling us to celebrate the Lord's sovereign grace. Out of his sheer goodness, the Lord chose us. And he chose us in order to bless us. Now, we need to be careful here. Uh, As soon as we hear, blesses the nation whose God is the Lord, we all want to go, I want that to be America. I want America to be the nation that's blessed because our God is the Lord. But is that what the psalmist is talking about? Two things. First, it is good to want to see America become devoted to the Lord. Right? When Jesus gives the Great Commission, he calls us to disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he taught. Surely that has to include our own country. We're not just trying to disciple people in Africa while we're not trying to seek to disciple America. Right? Now, it's true that this term nations probably is better translated people groups. But instead of that lessening the impact, it actually intensifies it. See, the Lord has not sent us out in the Great Commission simply to win over 51% of our neighbors. The Lord has sent us out to win all of them over. He says, disciple Chinatown in Little Italy, Wall Street in Main Street, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so if someone asks me, how many Americans do you want to see become full Bible-believing Christians? There's only one biblical answer that I can give and only one that you can give. Every single one of them. And so it's a good desire to want to see America be a nation devoted to God. But two, that's not what the psalmist is talking about. Right? So we got to make that distinction here. That is not what the psalmist is talking about. When the psalmist exalts, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen is his heritage, he's talking about the covenant people of God. And in his own day, that's identified with the ethnic nation of Israel. In the New Testament, that identifies with the church. Right? It's the people of God. We are the people whom God has chosen. We are the people that the Lord looks upon as his own heritage. No matter how many Americans are genuinely converted, neither America nor any other nation, and they say nation, I mean modern civil state, can rightly be identified with this verse. The new covenant community that this blessing applies to is the church of Jesus Christ. We who have been baptized and brought into Christ's family are the people whose God is the Lord. Astonishingly, we are the people whom he has chosen for his own heritage. How did we get into this family? Entirely through his sovereign grace. So let us praise the Lord for his creative power and let us praise the Lord for his sovereign grace. 
I, I should let you know, since I gave you four points, that's most of the sermon. So don't panic and think we're going to be here for another 45 minutes. That's not true. But we are to praise the Lord for his creative power, and we are to praise the Lord for his sovereign grace. Let us also praise the Lord for his righteous governing of the universe. Look at verses 13 through 17 with me. 13 through 17. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's very famous essay, God in the Dock, which is in a book called God in the Dock that tells you how famous this essay is. Lewis had insightfully pointed out that for modern Western man, human beings are on the judge's bench when they consider God. That is, human beings put themselves as the judge, and they put God in the dock. The dock is the British place where the accused would have to stand, or in some cases sit, while on trial. Lewis writes this, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. He is a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is, man is on the bench, but God is in the dock. And the psalmist is reminding us that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is not in the dock. He is eternally and unshakably enthroned on the judgment seat of the universe. He is not the distant and uninvolved deity of the ancient Epicureans or the modern deists. Rather, the Lord looks down from heaven and he observes all the deeds of men. You ever stop to think why deism is so popular in the West? Theism is the idea that God is way off in a distance. He got, kind of got the the ball going, he got things started, but he's not involved in our day-to-day affairs. Because it does allow you to kind of a nod toward religion, maybe an explanation of how the universe came about, but it also allows you to live any way you want. No accountability, because God doesn't really care. That, of course, leads to all manner of horrors. If people actually live as though there is no God, they create monstrosity after monstrosity. So it turns out that even the most committed deists and the most hardened atheists actually want their accountant and their butcher to have at least a healthy bit of the fear of the Lord in their lives, right? They don't don't want their accountant going, hey, you know, if I just happen to steal money, that's fine. They want the accountant to follow the rules. They want the person producing the food to care about their health, but they want to make themselves an exception. If everybody were to live this way, it would destroy society. It would be a disaster. And the good news is, 
Not only that the Lord will bring evildoers into judgment on that last day, though he most certainly will, and the good news is not that a partial fear of the Lord restrains sin, even in the present evil age, although thankfully that's also true. The good news is the Lord is intimately involved in the affairs of our everyday life. Indeed, the Lord is working all things together for our good and for his own glory. As the psalmist puts it, the king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Beloved, our God reigns, and that is good news. And so we praise the Lord for his creative power, we praise the Lord for his sovereign grace, and we praise the Lord for his righteous judgment. Finally, we praise the Lord for his steadfast love. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Has God forgotten me? The psalmist says, absolutely not. His eye is on those who fear him. Beloved, you are never out of the sight or the care of your Father in heaven. The eye is on the Lord of on those who I'm sorry, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. You probably realize there's a parallelism there. If you remember how Hebrew parallelism works, this is synonymous parallelism. I think it's actually helpful. In synonymous parallelism, you have two ideas, two expressions that are basically the same thing. They can be a little different, but they're basically the same idea. And by using the parallelism in this way, um, the psalmist is making clear that fearing the Lord and hoping in his steadfast love are so closely connected that they are essentially saying the same thing. I've discovered that sometimes people have difficulty getting their minds wrapped around what does it mean to fear the Lord, to hold him in reverential awe, Maybe it's easier for you to see the other side of this. To trust the Lord. Trust in his steadfast love. Right? Because in order to trust the Lord, you have to believe he has all the power. And also that he cares about you with an everlasting love. Fearing the Lord and hoping in his steadfast love are so closely connected that they are essentially saying the same thing. And the good news is that those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. So our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Therefore, we have the confidence to pray, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen.